Welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. And thank you for joining us for the 118th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. We'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during this show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. As always, thank you very much for that, and if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. Well, uh, notwithstanding my embellishments, <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that was a uh, riff from Rebel Rebel, which was a uh, David Bowie song, that's how it's pronounced in England, or for us Americans, David Bowie. Uh, off of uh, Diamond Dogs, which I think was 1974, 
and I decided to choose that song because it, uh, it within the lyrics of the song, it talks about confusions uh, exhibited by teenagers and young adults, and one of those being uh, gender identity and or with whom one should be coupling. So I thought that would be a, a kind of a cutesy little intro to our topic this evening. Oh, yes. Okay, I can see that. That's great. All righty. Thank you very much for that. Um, as Dr. Mathis mentioned, tonight's episode is entitled um, Heterosexual People in Same-Sex Relationships, and we'll be discussing that in just a moment. Before we begin this topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. So we had a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, another passing of yet another bass player uh, this week. And since most people will have no idea who the heck that is, I thought I would give a history of the band that uh, he played with for many years. And uh, a lot of people may or may not even know the band, but they will know one song from the band, absolutely. So the bassist, uh, who's actually a co-founder of the band, uh, passed away uh, just three days ago, September 26, uh, after struggling uh, quite an extensive battle with multiple sclerosis. And the uh, individual about whom I speak's name was Alan Lancaster, who was a bassist uh, for a band called Status Quo. <clears throat> now, whether oh. people know who that is, yeah, so whether, you, whether folks know who that is, they will know when I start talking about the history of status quo and give the, their first and most memorable song, everybody will go, is that who did that song? Because it's been redone by a lot of folks uh, over the years, including um, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, who does a really good version. And I think he does it, I can't remember if he did it with Typo Negative or if he did it with an, I can't remember which band he did it with, but it, he did a really good version. Um, at any rate, they, they started out actually in the late 60s and started out uh, with various other names, uh, which at one point uh, involved uh, the name Traffic, which of course they couldn't do because they... Uh, got a little call from uh, Steve Winwood's band, Traffic, going, um, uh, oh. you guys can't take that name. We, we already have it. Uh, but, yeah, but they, they were called various other things, uh, including initially, you know, love this, because this was formed in 1962 prior to the band that we all know by this name, the Scorpions. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So they were originally they were they were high school bomb uh, chums at a school in uh, Catford, England, in London, and uh, Francis Rossi and Alan Lancaster were the two founding members. And they started out being called the Scorpions, and then they changed it to a couple of times to the Spec. Then they changed it to the Specters, and then they were going to get changed it to Traffic. And they went, no, 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 you can't be doing that. And so they finally they changed it to the status quo and then to status quo. So they started, most people know them as this sort of um, psychedelic kind of acid-y, psychedelic-y kind of band uh, back in the day because they got their 
record deal and released their first major single in 68. So, you know, if, if you remember, that was the, you know, the peace, love generation and, you know, with, with people like Traffic and Kareem and all those folks. So they uh, ended up releasing one that uh, their Francis Rossi, a piece that Francis Rossi wrote, and it came up just a huge success called Pictures of Matchstick Men, which if you haven't lived under a rock, you've heard that song. You may not even know the name of the song, but you've heard it a jillion times. Uh, and they sort of became known as this kind of hippie-esque, psychedelically oriented kind of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, a band. And then they released a couple of other songs off their first recording, all of which were very, you know, spacey and, and psychedelic-y. And they started to like kind of not make it with those. And they said, you know what, uh, this stuff is kind of going out of, out of style. And for our next album, uh, you know, a- after they put out the second album in 70 and it kind of like didn't go that well, uh, they decided to switch over from a psychedelically oriented band to a more hard rock slash boogie type band. And so everything they've done henceforth has been in that genre. So they have probably done, I think a last count I saw was like 25 record albums. They're still together. Uh, they've changed personnel over the years and eventually uh, had a falling out with Alan Lancaster and they've replaced him and you know, they've had deaths in the band and that sort of thing. And actually currently I think the only surviving member of the original band uh, is uh, Francis Rossi, who is the lead guitar player and, and also one of the vocalists. And he's still the only original member uh, from the state and the most consistent member of the status quo. Folks have come in and out and that sort of thing. And they, they've gone on tour with a bunch of other folks and supported acts and done some lead shows as well, uh, in, in Europe especially. Um, but they have released a shoot ton of records, none of which... Yeah, the biggest one that charted was uh, Pictures of Matchbook Men, but they, Matchstick Men, but they've still had one in, I think, 75 called Down Down that was actually a number one chart. And I think they had, uh, they actually charted number three in 77 with a song they did not write, which wasn't that big of a hit for the author of the song, uh, but was a really big hit for them uh, called Rockin' All Over the World. And if you're thinking, Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't John Fogarty do one of those songs? Uh-huh, because he wrote it. Uh, <laughs> so that they do a really good version of that. I've seen them do that. I saw a live show of them, a taped live show of them when they were doing Rockin' All Over the World. And they just, they kill that song. I mean, it's just amazingly good. Uh, but they've done, most of the songs that they've charted with have been number five position, number 10 position, number seven position, number 11 position, number five position, number three position. That was rocking all over the world. Um, whatever you want charted at number four. So they've had a lot of top 10 chart hits. They've just not this great well-known band, except they've, they've been playing live since like 68, 69, a band. It's just not that people know them. They know them more, you know, as the band that did the, the quote-unquote one-hit wonder, which is not true, which is pictures of matchstick men. Uh, <laughs> um, 
so yeah, but they've they've continued to release records. They still release records. Um, they've done covers of other people's. Uh, they, they did a cover of a Jennifer Lawrence song called "I'm Restless." Uh, I mean, they've just they've done a cover of uh, Fleetwood Max "Don't Stop." They've done a cover of the Beach Boys "Fun Fun Fun." You know, till her daddy took her T-bird away. One of my very few yeah. Beach Boys yep. songs I actually like. Sorry guys, but I'm not a Beach Boys guy. But uh, I like that song, and I, and these guys again, I've heard them do this live, and it's just a really, really good version of it. I mean, these guys do great versions of stuff. Um, one of their other major members, uh, Rick Parfait, uh, excuse me, Parfit, uh, who joined in '67, uh, had about a throat cancer. I mean, they've had a lot of. Uh, of stuff going on, uh, just really, 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 really bad. And so he had to take a hiatus from the band, and then he came back. I think that was, uh, I can't remember, I think that was in 2005, uh, late 2005, and then he came back in, in mid-2006 with the band. And they've done a couple of shows where they, the big four, which, you know, is basically is uh, Parfait, Lancaster, uh, Francis and I forget who the other guy was. There was another one that was like one of the original folks there. Um, can't remember if it was John Colgan. I can't remember who it was now. But they they called it the Big Four tour, and it was original guys. They sort of uh, mended their fences with Lancaster, who definitely had a falling out with them at some point, and went his separate ways and started his own band and did a bunch of stuff, but kind of came back to them. Uh, but has been in and out. They've, they've lost drummers through death, and they've replaced them. And uh, They've done some stuff like Bloody Blues, where they've been backed by full orchestras and done all kinds of cool stuff. So these guys are just a lot of – they're very, very fun. They're, they're great live, uh, just a really, really cool, cool band that if you get a chance to see them, they're really, 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 really good. Um, they they played for the Princess Trust. They've done uh, British Heart Foundation shows. Uh, they've just they've done a lot of really cool stuff uh, with them. Now I would really hire, uh, highly encourage anybody who hasn't seen them. Uh, they've done movie. They've actually done a little short. Some of the members, the two, the two members, have done the main guys have done uh, like TV things, uh, like TV cameo kind of stuff. Uh, they've they've done all kinds of cool stuff. So what I would say is if you get a chance to see these folks uh, either live or to get a video of them, it's really good. They're great. To, they're uber together. They're a lot of fun. They're very interactive. Uh, and uh, I would highly recommend them for those who only know them for, for the uh, Matchstick Men song. They'll surprise you because none of the other stuff they do sounds like that. They're all kick-butt rocking. Uh, I mean, they've, in 2019, during Leonard Skinner's uh, – kind of final tour that wasn't really a final tour uh you know all these bands do that crap uh they were actually special guests uh during the leonard skinner uh, during the uk uh version of their tour so i mean they've they've appeared with a bunch of very well-known people uh, just really really awesome so if you get a chance check them out they're really cool and my uh Sympathies go out to lancaster's family and the members of status quo and hopefully uh They'll keep on rocking. So there you have it. All righty. Thank you very much for that. Let's give some applause. Always a good time at Trivia Hour. Okay. 
All right. Uh, again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until midnight. So please feel free to give us a call if you like. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. Okay, meat and potatoes time. Episode 118, Heterosexual People in Same-Sex Relationships. So tonight's show is a response to a recent news article in which a well-known actress who plays a popular media figure that is largely assumed in pop culture to be straight and catering to the attention of males came out in the media, seemingly out of the blue, to reveal that she had been in a significant long-term relationship with another woman. Now, the interesting aspect of this, and one that has confused many fans and people in general who saw the articles, is that even today she still self-identifies as heterosexual and seems to consider this relationship something of an anomaly with regard to her sexual orientation. So tonight we want to discuss how these situations happen and to help our listeners understand so that they'll have a more accurate and mature comprehension of the situation, which not only often helps cut down on thoughtless comments or inappropriate assumptions, but may also be of benefit to validating such situations for persons who've ended up or may end up in similar relationships. So tonight we want to talk about first the basic mechanic of how your average person concludes their own personal sexual orientation. Next, are people like this dishonest, confused, or is it our flawed understanding of sexual orientation? And last, what you can do to better understand these relationships for yourself and for others. And before we get started, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, see if there's anything you'd like to add before we dive in. Nope, I'm good. Thanks. All righty. So I have clips from an article about this person and their situation that I'm going to read before we get to the analysis part because I I don't know how many of you have seen it or how many of you saw the whole thing, what's going on. But Cassandra Peterson, who plays the vampire character and media figure Elvira, married musician Mark Pearson in 1981, and he soon became her personal manager. They had a daughter together, Sadie Pearson, who was born in 1994, and they were divorced on February 14, 2003. So in her 2021 memoir, which came out somewhat recently, and thus the article started flying soon after, Peterson revealed that she had been in a relationship with a woman, Teresa, or T, as in the letter T, Weirson, for 19 years. They began the romantic relationship following Peterson's separation from her husband. In fact, I I think if memory serves and it may come up later in the article, she had separated from her husband, but they hadn't yet divorced, and she made friends with Teresa for several years. Um, Technically, the romantic part was a couple years after they, they got divorced. So there's a little overlap, but not really that much. Okay, so this year, Cassandra Peterson, best known to the world as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, did three amazing things. She turned 70, and let me tell you, if you see recent photos for the articles, she looks good for 70. She looks good for 50. She looks good for 90. She just looks good. (laughs) Um, Anyway, she released her memoir, Yours Cruelly, Elvira, 
and she has come out about her 19-year relationship with another woman. And these are some quotes from her. Yes, I was married for 25 years to a man. And after I was divorced, I fell in love with a woman, she revealed during a call with the press to discuss the book. I'd never had any inclinations that I was gay. I don't. And honestly, to tell you truth, I don't think I'm gay. I'm attracted to men. But I felt for this woman. The two began began as friends after meeting at the gym. Uh, Teresa Wearson, or T as Peterson refers to her, was a trainer who caught her, her eye right away. Quote, we were good friends for six years. She was in a relationship, I was in a relationship, and there was no interest in being with her. She just became a very good friend. I don't know what happened. She was just a very special person, special and unique, and we fell in love, Peterson said during the recent call. After nearly 20 years together, Peterson said she couldn't hide their relationship anymore. It feels so hypocritical. I just hate that, she admitted. The reason it took so long, she explains, was simply out of fear around what it would mean for her career. Quote, I do have a character, a brand, and a business I was protecting. I mean, Elvira is a giant horn dog, you know. She chases men. She loves men. All of a sudden, to be with a woman was shocking to me. More shocking to me, I think, than anyone else, she explained. I didn't want to flush it all down the toilet, so I hung on to that secret for way too long. But now I feel like I can talk about it. And, you know, if some company doesn't want to hire me to host their television show, well, you know, screw them. I've made enough money. I'm doing well. I don't need them, she laughed. I'm so happy that I'm talking to people about it now, and they can find out about it now, because having secrets is not good. It's like holding it in, you know, gives you gas really drains your energy. If there's one through line to all of Peterson's stories, it's that she's a survivor who remains resilient no matter what comes her way. That in part is what's made her an LGBTQ icon. It's that toughness Peterson credits to her loyal queer following, which she is a little bit iconic for that community. Quote, I think Elvira resonates with them. Believe it or not, she's a little bit androgynous in that she's a very sexy woman showing it a cleavage and all that, but then her male side is that she's strong, tough, determined, doesn't take any crap, and that is something I think people align with, she explained. Cher and Madonna, for example, have that same thing going on. They're both super sexy, they're both tough, strong, don't take any crap, and I think that appeals to gay men and women. End of, end of article notes. So the fact that Peterson felt she had to hide this relationship from her fans and the media only goes to show several points here. First, if one identifies as heterosexual and ever does anything that does not fit that stereotype or assumption, many people will claim your professed identity was false or that the changes were a publicity stunt. And that actually also happens to not famous people as well. You know, maybe not with publicity because you're not looking for it, but, you know, an attention-seeking behavior. Uh, Second, many people still assume that sexual orientation is in stone and never changes. Concepts like being bisexual, pansexual, asexual, and related possibilities are still not widely accepted enough. And third, people presume far too much permission to gatekeep and judge the sexual orientation and identification of people they're not connected to 
in a relationship with or even know personally at all. Many people still do not understand how someone can identify as straight or heterosexual and have such relationships. So this is how we will begin our discussion by explaining how people arrive at discovering their sexual orientation and preferences. All right, so section one, the base mechanic of how average people conclude their own personal sexual orientation. Determining one's sexual orientation is largely a lengthy, solitary, and confusing process for most people, even if they feel they know where they stand from a young age. Unlike many other preferences in life, this is not a process that is taught in school or religious classes, mentored by adults or family, or really explained or talked about much as one is growing up. Most people are generally left to figure it out for themselves by trial and error and maybe what they see in TV shows and movies, that sort of thing. Oftentimes people will declare they have an orientation, and this could apply to straight, gay, or other other labels entirely, to please what they believe people want it to be, what people expect and stereotype, or even just to avoid bullying and butting into their personal business only to find out years later that the previous label doesn't feel authentic or true. Factors that can influence or interfere include, but are not limited to, family expectations, availability of desirable partners of whatever gender, religion, politics. Hearing an awful lot in the last few years of very conservative people who get caught um, what the African-American community likes to refer to as on the down low. (laughs) And it's kind of funny how they decry all that and try to legislate it away and then turns out they're part of it. Um, Safety of community, like the likelihood of other adults being inclined to or having access to someone to bully them. You know, if you're in the city and nobody notices your business, you're probably not going to get picked on. But like if you're in a rural area where everybody knows everybody's business and somebody's ashamed of it, you might get picked on so you keep that quiet. Um, Race and culture, uh, again, for example, the down low thing. Mental health regarding ability to navigate one's own feelings in this way, such as various pathologies that could hinder accurate self-exploration and more. Next section, do we choose our orientation? Most of you know the answer to this, but I just want to put it in there and be clear. Being straight, gay, or bisexual, or whatever you are, is not something that a person can choose or choose to change. In fact, people don't choose their sexual orientation any more than choose their height or eye color. It's estimated that about 10% of people are gay. This is approximate, and I didn't cite the source in there, but one could look it up. Uh, Gay people are represented in all walks of life, across all nationalities, ethnic backgrounds, and in all social and economic groups. No one fully understands exactly what determines a person's sexual orientation, but it is likely explained by a combination of biological and genetic factors. Medical experts and organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP, and the American Psychological Association, APA, view sexual orientation as part of someone's nature. Being gay is also not considered a mental disorder like it was in the 60s and before, or an abnormality. 
Despite myths and misconceptions, there is no evidence whatsoever that being gay is caused by early childhood experiences, parenting styles, or the way someone is raised. Efforts to change gay people to straight, sometimes referred to as conversion therapy, have been proven to be not only ineffective, but they can be harmful. Health and mental health professionals caution against any efforts to change a person's sexual orientation. Next, at what age do kids know? Knowing one's sexual orientation, whether straight or gay or all kinds of stuff in between, is often something that kids or teens recognize with little doubt from a very young age. Some gay teens have said they had same-sex crushes in childhood, just as their heterosexual peers had opposite-sex crushes. And the article doesn't say that, but I'm going to say that regardless of your orientation, some people have had both of those things. Um, I honestly don't think at that young of an age it's much of an indicator because you have a, a lot of stuff and then you kind of work through what feels authentic to you as you go along. By middle school, as they enter adolescence, many gay teens already recognize their sexual orientation, whether or not they revealed it to anyone else. Those who didn't realize they were gay at first often say they always felt different from their peers, but they didn't know exactly why. Becoming aware of and coming to terms with one's sexual orientation can take some time. Thinking sexually about both the same sex and the opposite sex is quite common as teens sort through their emerging sexual feelings. Thank you. I wanted to make sure that we didn't try to pigeonhole this too much. Um, Some teens may experiment with sexual experiences, including with those of the members of the same sex, as they explore their own sexuality. But these experiences by themselves do not necessarily mean that a teen is gay or straight. Before... For many teens, these experiences are simply part of the process of sorting through their emerging sexuality. And despite gender stereotypes, masculine and feminine traits do not necessarily predict whether someone is straight or gay. Once aware, some gay teens may be quite comfortable and accept their sexuality, while others might find it confusing or difficult to accept. All right, next I want to just talk about a couple of terms that are used a lot with this to make sure that we are clear on which terms refer to which because a lot of people use these interchangeably or incorrectly and I want to make sure we're on the same page with that. So gender identity is who you feel you are inside and how you express those feelings through how you act, talk, and dress naturally, etc. Like you're not putting on airs to live into a stereotype. It's just what comes out of you without thinking about it. Sexual attraction is the romantic or sexual feelings you have towards others. And there is such a thing as people who are asexual and they don't really feel these at all. Um, Sexual identity is how you label yourself. For example, using labels like queer, gay, lesbian, straight, or bisexual, etc. And sexual behavior is who you have sex with and what kinds of sex you like to have. And these are all different, distinct slivers of the pie, and they're not fully interchangeable the way people tend to use them. So I wanted to make sure we cleared that up. Sometimes all of these things are in line for a person. For example, a woman may feel attracted only to women, identify as a lesbian, and have sexual relationships with only women. But these things don't always line up. 
not everyone who has sexual feelings or attractions to the same gender will act on them. And here at this point, I'm going to pause and check in with Dr. Mathis to see if you'd like to add anything. Um, is there some aspect of this do you think that the listeners would um, benefit from comments from me upon some specific aspects of what you just said? Um, I think if you have anything to add on the typical process that one does growing up to decide where your label is, um, I, I sort of feel like I haven't fully addressed something, but I, I don't know what I don't know. So I don't know. If that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's helpful in determining a, a, an answer, but if something falls okay. in line with that, that would be good. Okay. Well, I mean, generally, uh, most of what you said is true. I mean, most of us, our, our orientation is sort of a combo of the genetic predispositions. We come to the table with the brain wiring, that kind of stuff. Um, roughly 10% of the people who will admit it are gay. Uh, I suspect that, that's, that there's the people who aren't admitting it, that that number is probably a little higher. Um, it also doesn't address the people that are bisexual or asexual. Uh, typically what I see is, you know, people become asexual for a number of reasons, just like they become hypersexual, uh, which I, I think it's real interesting because for a long, long number of years, you'll see in the uh, DSM, uh, there used to be a thing about, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, about you know, a disorder, and I forgot what it was called, where people weren't basically uh, very sexual. They were hypoactive sexual desire disorder. That's what it's called. And I don't see any of those in my practice because most of the people I, I see have the opposite problem if they have a problem with that. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, you see people who are not that sexually motivated, and there's actually a disorder for that if they're, like, not sexual and all. But you don't see a lot of stuff talked about in the DSM or in our, you know, uh, you see it in our common culture, but not a lot of clinical talk about people who are hypersexual, except as a result of things like early sexual abuse trauma. Uh, you know, and I, and I joke about it, that our society, you know, it's, it's okay to be a little hypersexual. It's not okay to not want it. <laughs> you know, and I just think that's an interesting commentary on our society from a sociocultural perspective. Um, people don't often know how they identify sometimes until early, early adulthood, mid twenties, uh, particularly if you grow up in a sheltered uh, environment or you grow up in a very religiously conservative environment, you may have uh, bisexual feelings or, or homosexual feelings and not even entertain that at all uh, due to the you know, repercussions or even limited exposure so, you know, it, it really it's, it is so dependent on the realization of that is dependent on a number of factors. There was a lot. Uh, I have met a fair amount of uh, homosexual folks of both female and male varieties who said that they even went through periods of their life where they were, you know, an act for lack, lack of a better term, a performing or functional heterosexual and just never felt right with it and just for whatever reason uh, didn't really entertain going the other way, even though they never, it was never really their thing. And some of them have had kids and still go, you know, this is really not my thing. And when they had their first uh, opportunity 
or they have that first encounter with same-sex situations, they're like, oh, my God, this is why I felt weird. And and it's just always amazed me that sometimes I see people in the 40, you know, who tell me that they didn't discover this till the 40s or 50s, which kind of blows my mind, frankly. But, you know, I guess, you know, everybody's different. And it just, just uh, shows to go, yeah, as I like to say, that you can never predict that it. it's not, uh, you know, developmental trajectories are rarely linear things, and they don't always follow the prescribed developmental uh, sequelae. <laughs> so, you know, as all these manuals say, well, you're by 20, you're supposed to be doing this, you know, and <laughs> nature often has, yeah, nature often has other plans uh, when we try to I- impose artificial uh, landmarks on these things. And while, you know, a lot of people do follow the traditional trajectories, because that's how we came up with them by observing the quote unquote normal population, um, You know, there's a lot of things that can go awry and a lot of things that can either speed it up or delay it, Uh, you know. And I I think the other thing that I'd wanted to say is is even today, while people are pretty – while the professional community is pretty open to a lot of stuff and and looking at a lot of stuff, the lay community is not as – I don't want to say forgiving, but that was the word that came to my head – it's not, you know, not as accepting, there's the better word, that people could be, you know, bisexual, for instance. I mean, I see a lot of people, both heterosexual and homosexual, go, oh, they're just a repressed heterosexual, and or they're just a repressed homosexual, and they don't want to admit it. I mean, there is a good body of research out there that says bisexuality is a real deal thing, and that there's a group of people out there who are genuinely bisexual and are, as I like to jokingly refer to it, equal opportunity sexual bigots, <laughs> right? right. Uh, you know, oh, and Lord. I joke about that. Yeah, uh, but they are, and some of them have a preference. So they might be bisexual with a strong homosexual preference or bisexual with a strong heterosexual preference. But, I mean, I, I had a friend I used to know many years ago who was probably... I would say 60-40 was definitely bisexual and probably 50-50-60-40 in his preference and had had relationships and had, you know, both casual and romantic relationships with people of both genders and didn't really have that big of a preference and just didn't care. Uh, And I know relatives of friends that I have who you know, have shown up at parties with same gender folks and with opposite gender folks. And I actually asked one of them uh, at the party, at one of the party functions that I was at, it was kind of a get together. I don't know if you call it a party, but anyway, gathering. And I said to this person, hey, um, I don't mean to be snooty, you know, being like all boundary transgressional and, you know, nosy and stuff, but didn't I see you last year with this kind of person and now you're with this kind of person? And this person said, yes, you absolutely did. And for me, I'm just one of these people that love doesn't know gender. And so if I find somebody I love, I really don't care what gender they are. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. And I suspect that's more common than people give other folks credit for doing. That's the only one I've ever met who would admit it or who had voiced it to me directly. Um, But I just thought that was very interesting. and I guess it's the same phenomenon that love doesn't know race or nationality or whatever. And so it, it actually made sense to me. Uh, and I thought, okay, I can deal with that. So it was interesting. So, yeah, this is a very convoluted phenomenon. Um, 
and it's it's not easily parceled out, and it's, it doesn't fit boxes. And I think in general, people are uncomfortable with things that don't fit in boxes, particularly when it comes to this kind of thing, just because of the nature of how our society sort of focuses a lot on sex. I mean, you can't you can't see a movie that doesn't have some sexual or you know romantic with sexual overtones in it almost. And it's just like, okay, come on. Um, so it's it's an interesting yeah. phenomenon. That's all. That's all I can say. Yeah, definitely. And this is a very good segue to section two, and um, th- and what you just said is one of the big takeaways that I hope people absorb from this. Is you know we're going to talk about some stuff, but this is one topic where there's a lot of flexibility in things, and that's part of why we're here to discourage you guys from trying to shove people in a box when it comes to this topic, because even in just the last few years, a lot of people of younger generations are coming out with new terms. And as often happens with these things, you know, at first people might be derisive about it, but we are coming to find that they're dividing this down even more because the available labels don't work. They just do not fit. And so this is changing quite a bit. I mean, I remember when a lot of the gay and leather community and LGBTQ shoot-offs, you know, they're fussing about the acronym, and they're fussing about what does the word queer mean, or does it mean questioning, all this stuff. And people are still arguing about that shit, like 30 years later. And this is kind of the same thing, but less arguing and more finding labels for things that fit better than the ones we've got, because they just don't don't feel it. You know? And that's the thing we'll, we'll find out as we talk about this tonight. In the end, we're not going to come to any hard and fast rules or, you know, labels and stuff. But I do want you guys to absorb, don't spend so much time trying to shove people in a box. So there may be a guy who's straight as an arrow, but there was this one time in summer camp, you know, that kind of thing is way more prevalent than people are willing to admit. And it's not that it's rare as much as people are embarrassed or worried about getting bullied or worried about what this means for their identification so they just don't say it you know you don't you don't find out or you find out after they're gone or whatever um so i hope that our listeners absorb that most of all of all of these points is that it's a very flexible thing so with that let's go ahead and go to section two which is you know are people like this dishonest confused or is it our flawed understanding of orientation Pro tip, it's mostly number three, but we're going to talk about it. So first let's start with reasons why straight people might have same-sex relationships and continue to be straight, basically. Um, It might be out of curiosity. There's a lot of people in their teens and 20s, even 30s, that just want to try stuff out because they haven't done it. They don't know if they hate it or not because they haven't tried. (laughs) So there's that, curiosity. Um, number two, mildly related, experimenting with the taboo. You know, maybe they're curious about it because people are shocked by it or it's forbidden or whatever. Um, availability. They may not be looking for it, but something is just easily had. So, you know, that's actually kind of a little what happened to Cassandra. Um, she wasn't looking for that at all and just made friends with somebody and really, really, really clicked with them, and it took years before it turned into something else. Um, Trying to prove something to themselves or others, I know that um, there is still sometimes in some situations an element of dominance with 
male same sex things, you know, and and oftentimes it's not even a relationship. It's just like we're going to do a thing, and I'm going to be the top to prove something. You know, it's, it's not always the men, and it's not always that point, but it's it's the I've got some point to prove in doing this factor that I'm getting at. And then the last one is not enough sex in current relationship and to some people, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm just saying it's their reasons, same sex is viewed by some people as technically not cheating because they can't go get guy sex from their wife, for example. Uh, this is also sometimes a thing with bisexual people. You know, if they're in a opposite sex relationship, but they're still interested in same sex, you know, they, they think it's not as bad because it's not something they can go home and get. Um, one of the reasons you might see gay or bi people having straight relationships, quote unquote, or sexless ones where they're in a relationship, but they don't sleep together or not often or something. Um, one of the biggest reasons that's done is social and monetary convenience. A gay person with a beard for appearance's sake, getting work benefits as a spouse. You know, you, there are places where, uh, you know, gay people mostly had marriage codified in this country and then it got nibbled away in the last couple of years. So I'm uh, fuzzy where we stand nationally. Um, but a lot of times they do these things to get work benefits as a spouse. The tax write-offs, get out of the social pressure, sometimes roommate benefits. You know, it's often just better to be in a household where you have multiple people taking care of stuff. And if you're not in a traditional identification or a stereotypical relationship, sometimes people get into it to get those benefits. Um, The next part I want to talk about is being clear that there are very, very few people who are fully gay or fully straight. And you, you see a lot more straight people getting insecure about this and whining about it. But this is going to talk real quick about something that's been around for a few decades, the Kinsey scale, where they did uh, different experiments and quizzes and stuff, polls, you know, and experiments. And they came up with this scale to express gay versus straight and it's not binary the scale is like six or seven things on here so here is the full Kinsey scale so that you can understand just how varied this is and this has been this way for eons Um, if you rate a zero you are exclusively heterosexual there are very few of these if you are one you're predominantly heterosexual only incidentally homosexual that's usually the one-timing Girl Scout camp types. Uh, number two, predominantly heterosexual, but more than incidentally homosexual. Sometimes that's referred to as heteroflexible, but honestly, people use that for number one or number two. Um, number three is, in theory, equally heterosexual and homosexual. Sometimes you see people here being bisexual. Sometimes it's now referred to as pansexual. And mostly the change with that, not to try to confuse you guys, is bisexual was a term that was come up with in an era where we hadn't had so many different answers to this, where people were still coloring inside the box a lot. Pansexual is more like the same thing, but you could have an attraction of people that haven't identified their gender or it's fluid or they're androgynous or something other than same or opposite. There are people that are other things, other labels. Pansexual now includes that. Um, Number four, 
predominantly homosexual, but more than incidentally heterosexual. And, you know, so on down the line. So five is predominantly homosexual, incidentally heterosexual. Number six is exclusively homosexual. Again, very rare. And they have added this more recently. It didn't used to be part of it. Um, They have an X in there at the end for no sociosexual contacts or reactions because of the rise of people who identify as asexual with no medical reason why they feel that way. They just feel that way. So my question for you, Dr. Mathis, and also I encourage you to uh, pop in with anything else you want to say, but my main question is why do these people still identify as straight? Why are they not considered bisexual? You mean folks who are not exclusively heterosexual or exclusively homosexual? Um, More people that identify as straight in the beginning and then they do something, you know, something in the middle of the Kinsey scale and and don't consider themselves bisexual after they do this. Like what, what is going on with that, that people still identify as straight despite those awful lot of times in Boy Scout camp incidences. What's going on with that? Well, I think that some people really are basically heterosexual and they have one or two, you know, off, experiences and they still consider themselves heterosexual and you know I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I also think there's a group of people who simply can't justify or rectify or square up their that they may not be exclusively heterosexual that they that to say that they're bisexual, pansexual, whatever somehow puts them in some kind of moral danger or ethical danger or self-esteem issues, and they just don't want to admit it to themselves. There's a group of people who don't, you know, who take a lot of care not to let other people see that side of them due to either political situations or socio, you know, interpersonal situations or members of the clergy, for example, or whatever. I mean, there's just a myriad of reasons why people do that. You know, I think that... You know, folks who do it, who are more what I would call, um, you know, maybe number twos or number threes on the Kinsey study scale. Uh, I think a lot of those folks just, they, they, they don't want to have to reinvent their self-identity. They don't want to have to do the work it takes to, to abandon their original identity and somehow incorporate that in, into their persona uh, as if somehow that's going to mean that they have all these other behavioral aspects that have stereotypically gone along with all of those things because they're still holding on to a lot of what I would call traditional socio-interpersonal conventions and or belief systems. Okay, that's fair. Um, Is there anything else that you want to remark about about that section before we move on? Um, I just that we're not the only species who does this. You know, humans aren't the only species who have just who have a variety of sexual interactions. Yeah. It happens in it happens in other animals in the animal kingdom too, not just the two legged ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean birds. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> well, I kept so, saying yeah. that. No, no, you know, the only people that have ever inhabited the land that I bought in Idaho are four-legged, you know, four-legged, who've never lived on the land or four-legged creatures knowing, oh, wait a minute, 
there's e- there's bald eagles and turkeys on the land. Okay, never mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm back. And right, I started laughing at myself, going, "Oh my God," you know. But oh, Lord. that's true. So now, uh, you know. Now two turkeys are moving in. Now, there you go. <laughs> and then now another turkey's moving in. <laughs> yep. All righty. So let's go ahead and go to section three, which is what you can do to better understand these relationships for yourself and for others. Um, first thing I want to talk about is, you know, and a lot of people are worried and worry about these questions. So I'm going to come out and say them so that you guys can feel a little braver about bringing it up where you need to. Um, first is, can other people tell what my sexual orientation is? Absolutely not. People joke about gaydar and stuff like that. Maybe there are other extraneous clues, you know, context clues or something, but this is not really a thing. You know, people worry that people are going to tell, and that's part of why they get anxious if something's happened. So, no, a person only knows your sexual orientation if you tell them. Sexual orientation describes how you feel inside, and only you know what it's like to be you. Some people may think they can guess if a person is lesbian, gay, or bisexual based on superficial factors like how they look, dress, or behave. There are stereotypes or very simplified judgments about how lesbian, gay, and bisexual people act. But just like heterosexuals, there are many different ways that homosexual and bisexual people look, dress, and behave. Using stereotypes to label someone else's sexual orientation can be inaccurate and very hurtful. So, no, they can't actually tell. Even if they say they can, they are self-delusional. Okay, next question. What if I'm unsure about my sexual orientation? Nothing wrong with that. This is really common, and it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. For some people, understanding their sexual orientation can take years or even a lifetime. Often people find that they're questioning for a while. And you remember earlier I had brought up that there was a lot of fighting in alternative communities about whether the Q means queer or questioning or both. And that's a little where that comes from. Um, So people can be questioning for quite a while or none of the labels used to describe sexual orientation fit them. Some people may try a label to see if it fits and then change it to another one when it doesn't. And that's okay too. You don't have to decide on one label, and it's okay someday in the future if you feel differently from how you feel now. All of this is fine. And I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything that you would like to add here. I would just say that I think we should spend less time worrying about who's doing what to whom in the bedroom or on the kitchen counter or (laughs) whoever they're doing it or not doing it. And focus more on, is this person an honest person? Is this person a good person? Is this person a just person? Is this person somebody who is takes other people's feelings into account? Is this person an individual with good boundaries? Because actually, you know, when the final analysis, from my own perspective, I don't really give two flying flips who's doing what to whom, where, when, how, and why, and how they label it. If they treat me in the way that I would like to be treated and respect me and are willing to accept likewise back from me, I don't really care. And if, you know, if they want to tell me and somehow they think it's important, great. 
Uh, if they don't, I don't even care. And I really think that more people need to pay attention to who the person is because who they have sex with, whether casually or on a regular basis, really says nada about them as a person. And I'm infinitely more interested in who they are as a person than who they are when they're being sexual. Yeah, okay, that, that is very good advice and definitely one of the points that we want you guys to take away from tonight. And I definitely agree with you. I think, you know, if you're not actively in a sexual relationship with that person or a wanted and trusted confidant, you need to stay the hell out of it. It doesn't affect yep. you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the vast majority of, of people in my practice, unless they tell me, I generally can't tell what they are. And I really don't care what they are unless what they are is causing them a problem and they, and they choose to tell me. Now, obviously, I mean, I'd be lying if I said somebody comes in and they don't and they come across as uber butch that I just kind of don't think, okay, either this person's gay and trying to cover it up or this person's insecure with their heterosexuality because they're being overly macho. Or if somebody comes in uber flamey, I'm like, okay, what have we got here, right? But I have seen very heterosexually oriented people be extremely effeminate. So you really... <laughs> you know, you might make cursory judgments based on exaggerated behaviors, and I want to make that very clear. But sometimes you're going to be right, sometimes you're going to be wrong. And in the final analysis, as I said before, whether it's in my office or whether it's, you know, sitting in my home or whether it's, you know, on the street or whatever, I just don't care. You know, unless it's bothering you and you want my clinical help, then I care, and then let's talk about it, and let's figure out how we can make it not bother you, right? Or we can do something to change it. But other than that, if you're a good person, I don't really care. That's that's the bottom line for me, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so I, I hope our listeners can absorb that tonight. And this is the top of the hour, and we have pretty much wrapped up our notes. So in in summary, we hope that our listeners now can better understand about the flexibility of sexual orientation and not to get overwrought or insecure or anxious. Uh, you know, if you think you're straight and then you have this incident and you weren't drunk and you liked it, you're fine. <laughs> and if people see that and somebody else you know has that happen, they're fine. They're not perverts. They're not going to the devil. They're not mentally ill. They're kind of just seeing where they are with things, and they're allowed to change that. You know, people change things about themselves. It's not that they can choose, but their natural inclinations may change on them. And don't pick on yourself and don't pick on other people who are going through it. You know, let them color outside the box. Let them throw out the coloring book for a while. Just do whatever. It's not hurting you. So we hope you guys will feel better about things that don't fit in the box and don't feel bad about things changing or any of that. All of this is fine. It is typical. It is not broken or a source of anxiety. You know, if you're having a lot of anxiety about it, go see a mental health professional. Talk it through because you're not broken. You just need to work that stuff out and be at peace with it. 
So this basically concludes our show, Heterosexual People in Same-Sex Relationships. Um, Dr. Mathis, do you have anything else you want to bring up before we wrap? Nope, I'm good. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, so on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners who are here this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who may be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. And we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion Wednesday, October 13th at 11 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com. We also like to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, first up, tomorrow night, Travelish Radio, as often happens, um, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Why would a woman take a solo driving trip, experience a face-to-face encounter with a 2,500-pound buffalo, and no, not in traffic, <laughs> and have all kinds of other adventures? Find out on Thursday, September 30th, when just-returned travel author Julie Valerie joins Travelage Radio for a special 30-minute interview. Hear her visit with Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee. This will be the 432nd episode of Travelage Radio, now in its 10th season on NDB Media, which, by the way, this past week celebrated its 14 years on Blog Talk Radio. And we had a little uh, celebration anniversary party on StreamYard on Monday. Um, No, pardon me. This was this weekend. I, I error. All right, next up is Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, and this will be on Streamlabs. Uh, Sunday the 3rd at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, join me at the Walking Dead online viewing party, Season 11, Episode 7, Promises Broken. Maggie learns a survival tactic from Negan. Eugene's group clears walkers, and Daryl hunts with Leah. Please join us online or on the air for real-time discussions, updates, trivia, profiles on the casting crew, and more. Uh, Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega on the 4th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. The Nightmare Hunter with Roger Noriega, I believe, is Tuesday evenings at 10 p.m. on StreamYard. And Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time is Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the terrific trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of television. So please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. We appreciate you joining us, and rock on. We will see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.